but we won't go there right now. Amen? So let's find out what happened. John Wycliffe really did not understand the impact that his writings were going to have and that his stance was going to have, that, that his translation of the Bible was going to have on the rest of the world for all times. But his writings, his translation of the Bible, and the stance for the Word of God that he took sparked a fire that would soon spread across the entire world. That fire that was sparked in England now takes us to, if you're taking notes, now it takes us to Bohemia. Everybody say Bohemia. So I'd like to share with you right now about the, the country and land of Bohemia. Okay, so I'll try to help you compartmentalize each of these different points. We're studying right now about Bohemia. So we move from England, we travel to what is now modern-day Czech Republic, which is a part of Austria or Hungary. That's where the governor is from, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, during this time, though, that region was known as Bohemia. During the 13th century, the official religion of Bohemia was Eastern Greek Orthodox. Germany came in during the 13th century and subjugated, or they gained control of the land of Bohemia. Germany considers Bohemia to be a great part of their history because the relationship stretches back all the way to the 7th century. But up until that time, Bohemia was pretty independent on its own. Germany, during the 13th century, came in, took control of Bohemia. When they came and took control of Bohemia, they also brought with them the religion of Germany. The religion of Germany was Roman Catholic. So Bohemia, which was a part of the Eastern Greek Orthodox Church, and which was also pretty independent, now has Roman Catholicism invading its lands, and every single person is being taught and raised to be a Roman Catholic. So by the 14th century, nearly all of Western Europe is under the rule of the Roman Catholic Church. The masses were held in spiritual darkness, though, because of the absence of the Word of God. No one could understand the Word of God because the Word of God, as we talked about before, was spoken in Latin. You have to search really deep in order to find this part of history. But it happened in 1079 A.D., I will tell you from my own research, which I've been doing since last Wednesday, this fact is extremely hard to find. It's hidden. And Rome does not want you to find it. Gregory VII, who was the Pope at that time, Gregory VII, declared or decreed, papal bull, which means he put it into law, that all public worship, and all public reading of the Word of God must be performed in Latin. This happened in 1079. Now, here's what he said. After much reading of the Word of God, or much studying of the Word of God, God was pleased that His worship should be celebrated in an unknown tongue. And that, to, and that a neglect of this rule had given rise to many evils and heresies. Again, you're going to have to search really far and wide to find that quote, but it is a quote from Gregory VII, who was the Pope at that time. 
What was Gregory the Pope? What was he trying to do? The Pope might say he was trying to protect the Bible from evil. So in order to protect the Bible from evil, let's, let's speak it in a language that nobody understands so that no one can uh, mess up the Word of God or, or pollute the Word of God. He might say that he's trying to prevent what we have today in the many denominations of so-called Christianity that all claim the Word of God or Scripture as their final authority. Gregory would also say that Latin was a pure and holy language because no, nobody knew it. But in reality, what this decree was doing, it was allowing people or causing people to walk in spiritual darkness because of a lack of access to the word of God. Gregory said that the Pope did not know it at the time, but he was being used by Satan to lead people down a path of spiritual darkness because of the absence of the word of God. Now, I want you to think about this. How many of you right now have a Bible in your hands or in your lap? Yeah. How many of you right now have a Bible in your hands or in your lap that you can read? Can you imagine for just a moment those Bibles being stripped from you? Can you imagine that all of the access that you have to the Word of God being taken from you and only being given to you by one man spoken in a language that you could not understand? That's exactly what happened to all of the people that were at that time hearing the word of God and then having the word of God confiscated from them like this. Now, some of you guys do know what that's like because you grew up as a Catholic. And you do remember the Pope, or not the Pope, but the priest, during the Mass, turning his back to you, taking the Mass or taking the host and doing so in a language foreign to you, but a language that stretches back as far as 1079 even before the language of Latin. You didn't know what he was saying. He might not even have even known what he was saying. But he was saying what he had been taught to say. This decree of Gregory was ensuring that people would not understand the word of God. Now, let's go back to Bohemia. The question that should come from your minds is, why Bohemia? Where did Bohemia come from? Or more specifically, how did we get to Bohemia, right? Let's talk about the word of God in Bohemia, okay? The word of God in Bohemia. So here's, here's the connection. Where did Wycliffe come from? England. Okay. Now follow this. In 1382, King Richard II from England marries Princess Anne of Bohemia. Okay. It was an arranged marriage. Richard is 15 years old. Anne is 16 years old. Although it's an arranged marriage, they have a good relationship, positive, all those kinds of things. Anne was known as Good Queen Anne. I had a picture of her. It was great. You'll see. The people loved her. Her kindness, her generosity to the poor was legendary. As a matter of fact, it is said that 6,000 people per week were fed because of her charity. 6,000 people a week were fed because of Queen Anne. Now, Anne, at a young age, was taught the scriptures. There were a number of faithful preachers while Anne was growing up in Bohemia. Some names that she would never even hear of, but they were faithful ministers of the word of God. Conrad Schrittner, Johann Malish, Matthias Johannes, 
it was said that Anne would ask a number of questions concerning the scriptures, and she was one of the rare individuals in probably all of the world who had her own copy of the scriptures. Listen, in three different languages. She had three different copies in three different languages. Hey, little kids, stop playing. Three different copies in three different languages. Through reading the word of God, Anne began to recognize all of the errors that were persisting in the Roman Catholic Church. And she began to pray for a return to faithfulness and to the doctrines of the apostles. All of a sudden, she gets an arranged marriage with the king of England. Why is that that interesting? Because what's happening in 1382 in England? I'll tell you what's happening. A man by the the name of John Huss is happening. God is using John Huss to, to create a fire that had not been sparked ever before. He's speaking out against the evil teachings of Rome and its Pope. He's speaking out against indulgences. He's he's speaking out against the manipulation of monks and friars. He's speaking out against the manipulation of priests. He's condemning friars on what they believed at his deathbed. He's condemning bishops at at, at these uh, councils. And apparently he has God on his side because even when no one is there, earthquakes are happening. And John Wycliffe is standing up and saying, this is from God. These prayers of Queen Anne, she felt, were being answered by God using John Wycliffe from England. And she has easy access to anything that she wants in England because her husband happens to be the king. The Bishop of York was horrified to learn that this woman owned her own copies of the scriptures and that she could actually read them. John Wycliffe heard of Queen Anne and he was delighted. He loved that this woman owned the scriptures and he loved that this woman read the scriptures. On many occasions, Anne protected Wycliffe from his many enemies. And on many occasions, she intervened and saved his life. Queen Anne of Bohemia then began to encourage and sponsor the students from Bohemia to go study in Oxford. Who was teaching in Oxford? Wycliffe. So students from Bohemia were going to Oxford, and when they were coming back, they were coming back with everything that Wycliffe taught. All of the books, the books that Wycliffe wrote, the translation of the Bible that Wycliffe translated. They're bringing all of these reformed ideas, all of these reformation thoughts back to Bohemia. And would die, though, before she could see the results of that reformation take place in Bohemia. She would pass away just months before Wycliffe because of the Black Plague. Remember how many people that wiped out? Well... Queen Anne happened to be one of them. She died at the age of 27. Her purpose was served, though, right? She was used by God to introduce students of Bohemia to the teachings of John Wycliffe that would introduce them to the teachings or to Christ himself. Now, in Bohemia, we look at a man that is going to be used by God. His name is John Huss. We're going to look at the, the birth and the early life of John Huss. John Huss is born in a place called Hussenek between 1369 and 17 or 1371. We don't actually know the year. But he was from a humble family. His father had died when he was a little boy and it left him and his mother to, to kind of fend for themselves. His mother was a pious woman. 
she believed in education. She believed that fear of God was the most valuable thing that she could teach her son. John Huss, he had a pretty normal education growing up. He was not at the top of his class like Wycliffe. He wasn't the greatest scholar like Wycliffe was, but he was a hard worker. And he eventually worked his way to study at the University of Bohemia called the University of Prague. The University of Prague. So while he's at the University of Prague, he's a hard worker. He's rapidly advancing. He's doing what his mother had taught him to do. He's fearing God. And he gains a reputation of being blameless. He gains a reputation of being a gentleman who would gain the respect of all of his colleagues. John Huss was also a Catholic. John Huss was believing in everything that he had been raised to believe. He believed in the priest. He believed in the monks. He believed in the pope. He believed in the church. He believed in all of those things because that's all he ever knew. He entered the priesthood after receiving his bachelor's in 1393 at the University of Prague. So he goes into the priesthood to be a part of everything that he'd ever known. But something was going to happen to Huss. He had been given a position to preach at a small chapel called the Chapel of Bethlehem. The founder of this chapel had one important rule, though, and it was for the ministers to follow. And that was this, that if you were going to teach the word of God at the Chapel of Bethlehem, you had to teach the word of God in the language that the people could understand. So John Huss began to do that. He began to preach to the people. In the language that they can understand. But also, he's reading the word of God for himself. So as he's reading the word of God and preaching the word of God in the language that people can understand, he begins to preach against all of the sins that people are committing in that town. He preached against those evils and he communicated with them that the things that they were doing were against the word of God. Hus began to preach again. But all of a sudden... A friend of his came back from Oxford, a friend by the name of Jerome. His name is his named or called Jerome of Prague. Jerome of Prague comes back from Oxford and he brings all of these writings from a guy named Wycliffe. And they start to read through these things together. And Jerome gives all of these writings to Huss. As Huss began to read the writings of Wycliffe, he started to see that Wycliffe was for real. He started to see that the ideas of reform that Wycliffe spoke about concerning the church and also concerning the evils that Wycliffe saw and wrote about concerning the church and the Pope, that they were true. These things started to spark something in John Huss that he wasn't ready for. But one of the things that really captured him the most was a, a cartoon drawing that John Huss saw of John Wycliffe. It was this. Two illustrations, actually. One was Christ, a, a cartoon of Christ wearing a crown of thorns. And on the other page was the Pope wearing a crown of gold. And something about that picture struck John Huss as this doesn't seem right. The other picture was this. It was a drawing of Jesus speaking to the woman caught in the act of adultery, saying to her, your sins are forgiven. While on the other page, a picture of the Pope who was selling indulgences to people to get them out of purgatory for their sins. All of these things began to, to work 
and mess really with the mind of John Huss. And it was what the Holy Spirit used to bring his eyes open and to regenerate him to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He then began to look at all the things that John Wycliffe saw. And he began to see those same exact things in the church. He began to see all of the evils that were taking place in the church. And as a matter of fact, as you look through Christian history, you're going to see that all of the reformers saw all of the same things. You're going to see the same thing that Wycliffe saw were the same things that Martin Luther saw. The same things that John Calvin saw. The same things that, uh, that John Knox saw. The same things that even today R.C. Sproul sees. John MacArthur sees. James White sees. We right now are seeing. And they are the things that Huss began to preach about. They are the things that Huss began to preach against. And he began to live up to his last name. His last name is Huss, which translated in the Bohemian language means goose. He began to make loud noise like a goose. So loud, so irritating, that the Roman Catholic Church started to catch wind that this goose was making a bunch of noise. He preached against the priests, against the false doctrines of the church. He preached against the Pope. The people loved him. The Pope hated him. The priest hated him. The church hated him. He stood on the fact that the Bible was a sole infallible rule of faith and authority for all of God's people or for the people of God. He didn't know it yet. But he was heading down the road of reformation. He didn't see himself as a reformer. He just saw himself as someone who was being faithful to the word of God. Just as you may be here this morning or this evening thinking, I'm just a person who's faithful to the word of God. You do not realize that you, you follow in a long line of great men and women who stood for the word of God. He believed in sola scriptura before there, that was ever the cry of the reformation. He called the Roman Catholic Church to be faithful to the word of God, which brought about persecution in Bohemia. Let's talk about that persecution of the gospel. The Bishop of Prague, who was in cahoots with the Pope, he made a papal bull or a papal decree that all of the writings of Wycliffe that were found in Bohemia were to be banned, confiscated and burned. The decree made preaching outside of the church illegal. Meaning this, if you preach outside of the church walls, then you would be charged with a public or a capital crime. Remember what a capital crime was last time? You could be going to jail or you could be put to death. Why did they do this? Why did the Roman Catholic Church make this decree in Bohemia specifically? Well, they obviously did it to silence the goose. Because John Huss is making so much noise. So if we close off John Huss and we close off all the churches from preaching, then John Huss has nowhere to preach. What did John Huss do? He began to preach out, outside of the church. He began to preach, I won't preach inside the church, I'll preach outside the church. And he began to preach against the law that just came down from the Pope and says, this is not from God. God did not give this man authority to make this kind of rule. And he began to preach the gospel even stronger and even firmer. And the students who were coming from Prague and from Oxford and reading the, the writings of Wycliffe, they saw the boldness of this man, John Huss, and they were encouraged. If this man can stand up against the Pope, then we can stand up against the Pope. So preaching began to spread like wildfire throughout Bohemia. There was a revival taking place. Huss would not back down. 
And they stood together for the cause of the gospel. And they were in unity because of that. They were in unity standing up against the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't know it, but they were not only starting Reformation, but they were kind of involved in a revolution. The Bishop of Prague began to confiscate all the writings of Wycliffe. It is said that he confiscated about 200. Now, you may think that's not a big deal, but when you have to copy everything by hand, that's a lot. They brought them in front of the town square and they burned them in front of all of the students who were preaching the word of God. And then the Catholic bells of Bohemia began to ring in celebration as if they had just defeated their enemy. In 1410, after this, the Pope called John Huss to stand before him in Rome because he believed that John Huss was teaching heresy. Now, if the Pope calls you to stand before him, it usually means you were going to die. However, the king and the queen of Bohemia, they wrote a letter to the pope in opposition to his request for John Huss. They wouldn't let him go. They're not going to let the man of the gospel, the man of the people, the the one who was leading people in the truth of God's word. They were not going to let him go to Rome and be killed. So they asked for the pope. Allow us here in Bohemia to preach the gospel freely. And also, pope. Don't be so quick to assume that heresy is being preached here. So instead of sending Huss, they sent three lawyers to stand and represent John Huss before the Pope. The result of that was this. One year later, in 1411, John Huss, listen to this, by the Pope. John Huss was excommunicated by the Pope. Listen, listen. John Huss's friends and associates were excommunicated by the Pope. Listen, listen. And the entire city of Prague was excommunicated by the Pope. Can you believe that? The Pope had the right to say, the whole city, y'all are all excommunicated. That much power. Now, what does excommunication mean to a Roman Catholic who's always been raised with the idea of excommunication? It means you're going to hell. Because I've just disconnected you from the church, and if you have no connection with the church, which is the only way that you can be saved, which Rome still teaches today, then you are going to hell. Your family members, your friends, some of your associates, some of you even had to get out of the thought that if I'm not in the Catholic church, I'm still okay, I'm not going to hell. Because Rome teaches the only way you cannot go to hell is by being a part of the church. This has not changed. What power? What power to be able to just say to a whole city you're going to hell? Wouldn't you like that kind of power? No, you wouldn't. The city of Prague was placed under this interdict. The Pope had given his decree... That meant this, you can't go to church because you're excommunicated. That meant you can't take communion because you're excommunicated. You can't hear the word of God. You can't, do, you can't do anything that you've been raised to believe you have to do in order to be okay with God. That's, that's hard. Why was this done? So that the people would turn against John us. They just wanted John Huss. The three lawyers went to stand to represent John Huss. They wanted John. And instead, they all had to pay for one man. Or so they think. Unless John Huss is turned over to Rome, 
the city of Prague would stay in exile. So what did John has to do? He says, fine, I'm going to leave the city. I don't want you guys to be persecuted because of me, so I'll leave the city. People began to rise up, even in spite of the excommunication that came down from the Pope, and people began to die. People were being killed by the henchmen of Rome, who were coming and trying to silence the ministers of the gospel there in Prague. John Huss himself, he left. There was a saying that said, let us cast out the rebel lest we die. So, rather than being the reason for the death of the people, and also there was a sense of depression that was coming over that place, John Huss left the city of Prague and went back to his hometown of Hussein. When he went back to his hometown, what did John Huss begin to do? He began to do the only thing that he knew to do. The only thing that really mattered, preach the gospel. He began to preach the gospel. The goose started to make a lot of noise again. He starts to lift up his voice, declaring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, declaring once again the evils of the Roman Catholic Church. And then he also began to write. His writings echoed the ideas and thoughts of, guess who? John Wycliffe. He's writing everything that Wycliffe wrote. He's saying everything that Wycliffe said. And he wrote a small tract called The Six Errors. Which dealt with the six major errors of Rome. Guess what happened to that? That track. That track, it makes its way from Husenik all the way back to Prague. And it's nailed on the door that he used to preach at. So that the people and that the people of Rome could see, you did not silence the goose. What courage. I mean, hey, take this back, put it back on the church where I used to preach. Just so that they know I'm still here. I'm still preaching. Man. Great crowds traveled all the way to Hasidic to hear this man preach. He's from a little small town. And masses would come and hear the person that, that was proclaimed as a heretic. But when hearing his preaching, they would say, his life is pure. His doctrine is pure. Everything that he says is elevating. People would run to hear the gospel taught by John Huss. And he continued to preach his heart out. But there was a plan to silence the goose, which is our next point. Pope John XXIII. I wish I had a picture of him. They're all up there on the web to see. He was the ruling pope at this time. He was the one who excommunicated. Check this out. He excommunicated the king of Hungary which was in the province of Bohemia, for not taking action against John Huss. Not only did he excommunicate the king, he excommunicated the king's son, the king's grandson, and the king's great-grandson, who had not even been born yet. <laughs> so he had so much power, he taking people out of church before they were even born. <laughs> While John Huss was in exile in his own hometown, Rome devised a plan. They decided that they were going to call together a council called the Council of Constance in Germany. This was in the year 1414. And this council was described as being a council that would bring reform and positive change to the church of Rome. Huss caught word of this and thought, this sounds like a positive event. This is what I'm all about. This is what John Wycliffe was all about. This is what the church has needed for the longest time. I need to be there. I mean, I, I have been a part of this for a very long time, it's my responsibility to be there. It's my duty to be there. 
So the Roman Catholic Church wanted to show, yes, we're evolving. And they actually even sent a personal invitation to John Hudson South. The emperor of Germany says, you need to go. And he granted Hus a safe conduct or safe passage if he should travel to this council. Meaning, and this meant this, if a, 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 an official, a governmental official gave you safe passage, you were guaranteed to get to wherever you needed to get to safely. No one could touch you. So Hus left. And as he traveled from town to town, getting to Constance, Germany, the masses would come out. And they were, they were hailing him as a hero. They would encourage him and tell him, thank you for the work that you're doing. They, they would encourage him on his way to the council, stand up for the word of God. All of these things. He had so much support. 26 day, days later, as soon as he gets to Constance, he's ready for this council. He's ready to, to be involved in something positive to reform the church. And as soon as Rome finds out he's there, he's immediately arrested. The people began to complain. The emperor said that we would have safe passage. But Rome's uh, response was this. We do not have to honor the rights of a heretic. Rome basically said, I don't care what you say. He's a heretic in our eyes. Therefore, he's under arrest. Pope John XXIII set up a trial. A trial which was really a mock trial. In which he needed no advice for anyone concerning the, the fate of John Huss, but brought John Huss before him and demanded that he recant all of the so-called heresies that he had been teaching all this time. John Huss said, gladly, I'll gladly recant any of the heresies if you can show me one of them from the scriptures. No one could. So they placed him in jail. And they placed him in actually the coldest, wettest, dirtiest dungeon in the castle there. Now check this out. His dungeon was placed at the very bottom. There was a, a monastery right next door. His dungeon was placed in such a way that all of the human waste and sewage would flow right through his dungeon and into the river right next door to him. Because of this, John Huss became extremely sick, even to the point that he almost died. So when Rome found out that this guy's about to die, they pull him out of the dungeon because they don't want him to die like that. They don't want the people to find out that he was tortured in such a way and not really given a fair trial. There would be revolution. So they created a trial for John Wycliffe. The trial of John Wycliffe. Rome wants to kill John Huss. Did I say Wycliffe? I meant Huss. I was saying, I meant Huss. I was just like hearing an echo. Wycliffe, Wycliffe. This is actually, oh, this is the trial of John Wycliffe. Check this out. Okay. <laughs> On May 4th, 1415, check this out. Those who were persecuting John Huss got together and said, we need to get together a trial. And the person that we're going to put on trial is a man that's been dead for 20 years. We call to the stage John Wycliffe. Okay, he's dead. If you remember from the last lesson, he went through four, right? The fourth one, he couldn't make it. Now he's dead, been dead for 20 years. They call him to trial, this dead man, and they have him stand trial on 260 counts of heresies. And 45 doctrines that he had written, which were also condemned by the church. What was the vote? 
it was a unanimous guilty <laughs> against the dead man. So here, remember how last time I talked to you about how they, they burned his bones? Sent out? So when he was condemned as being guilty, he was already buried. They unburied him or dug him up, took his bones, burned them, and then sent them down the river as his punishment. I was trying to figure out how they did that's how they did that. What was the reason they did this? Because if they could condemn Wycliffe in that kind of way, where they burned him and sent him down the river, they could do the same to John Huss. Because it's now been put in law. John Huss is not the first person. Because these thoughts didn't apparently originate with John Huss. They originated with John Wycliffe. So if we can get the person who started these things, then we can also get everybody who believes in them too. All propaganda. So the trial now of John Huss. Before the trial, John Huss was placed in his prison for a year. He had the heaviest chains placed on him. When he slept, they had him sleeping on a cot where he had to sleep upright for a year. They were trying to break him. An interesting note was that there was a feuding war between three popes at that time. You should look into that history. And the one who lost in this war between the feuding popes was John XXIII, the one who put Huss in prison. Matter of fact, he gets placed in the same, not cell, but in the same jail as John Huss and eventually dies in jail. On June 5th, 1415, the trial of John Huss began. John Huss was brought out and they made up 43 charges that he was accused of. Here's some of the charges. Murder. Heresy. They call him a devil worshiper. He's a liar, a hypocrite, an adulterer. Here's some funny ones. A dice player. I think all of us are guilty of that one, right? Woodshot, foothill. Um, and also for claiming to be the fourth person of the Trinity. They were just making up thing after thing, false thing after false thing. And John Wycliffe stood there. Heard every single one of these charges. He was sick. He was standing in his dirty robe. He was worn down from his chains. And the books that he wrote were brought out before him. And they began to throw false accusations at him left and right. Then they demanded that he recant all of the so-called heresies that he'd written and spoke about. John Huss spoke up and said that he had never said or taught any of these heresies that they were accusing him of. And he says, I appeal to the word of God as my defense. And as soon as he said that, all of his prosecutors began to laugh. They all began to make fun of him. He tried to speak up and they began to laugh louder. He tried to interject and they would laugh even louder. They would not let him say a word. So John Huss closed his mouth. And he stood there, silent, refused to say a word. After their laughing came down, they began to ask him questions and he would not answer. So then they charged him with another charge, being a dumb man who refuses to speak. Much like the Lord Jesus Christ who stood silent before his accusers. When he did get to speak, he said, I appeal to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only judge who is completely mighty and just. In his hands I place my cause, since he will judge each of us, not on the basis of a false witness, but of truth and justice. 
uh, Martin Luther comments on this moment and says, when, when John Huss said that, his accusers began to gnash their teeth at him. John Huss spent the next 30 days back in his jail cell. Chains were on his feet, chains were on his hands, tired, dirty, but still fervent with the truth of God and unrelenting. July 6, 1415 is actually the day that we know John Huss was born. And it was July 6 when John Huss was taken out of prison by the Church of Rome. They took him out of prison. They took off his priestly robe. They stripped him naked. They shaved his head. And they mocked him by putting a dunce cap on his head with drawings of devils and witches on it. On the dunce cap was written, the ringleader of the heretics. When John Huss saw the cap that was on his head, he said this. My Lord Jesus Christ did for my sake wear a crown of thorns. Why then should I again for his sake wear this this light crown? But truly I will do it and I am willing to do it. They placed it on his head and the bishop said, now we commit your soul into the devil. John Huss replied, looking up to heaven. But I commit my hands to the hands of the Lord Jesus. I commit my soul to the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has redeemed my spirit. The council said that they would release him. Just recant. Take back everything that you've said. Take back everything you said and we'll let you go. They said, you don't even got to say a word. Take some incense. Throw it in the fire. And we'll know that you're with us. But he would not. He could have recanted. He could have taken it back, saved his own life, but he embraced the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that Christ suffered in a more severe way, knowing that this was light, knowing that this was momentary. And if Christ could do it, then who am I to say I will not embrace suffering? The death of the goose. John Huss was condemned to be burned at the stake. And on his way, as they walked him to that that place where he would be killed, The murderers made sure that they passed him by a pile of burning books that were his own. They chained him to the stake and said, and he said, and this is so funny to me, but while he was chained to to that stake, he looked at the chains and said, my Lord Jesus Christ was bound with a stronger chain than these. Why should I be ashamed of these rusty ones? What courage. What courage. They began to pile up the wood and the sticks around him all the way up to his neck. One last time, they said, we can't. Take it back. We will will let you out. We'll let you free if you just take it back. He shouted out, no. I never preached any evil doctrine. And what I taught with my lips, I now seal with my blood. (laughs) And then he prayed aloud. Lord Jesus, it is for thee 